Welcome. Hi, I'm Mickey, and this is Wikipedia, where I sit down and chat to doctors, professors, athletes, practitioners, and experts in their fields related to health, nutrition, fitness, and well-being. And I'm delighted that you're here. having a great week. Uh, this week on the podcast I have the pleasure of bringing to you my conversation that I have with Bob Sieberhor. Bob was my introduction actually to metabolic efficiency and his concept in and around how we use fuel as a substrate for exercise but also in health really sort of led us at AUT University where I worked a number of years ago down the path of looking at low carb, high fat diets in terms of health and performance and sort of sparked all of our interest in this area. So uh, you can imagine then that I was very excited to be able to sit down and chat to Bob. So Bob and I discuss a number of different things in the podcast, in and around his background with nutrition, how he developed the concept, I suppose, of metabolic efficiency, which was also built around his information around nutrient timing. So we discuss all of that and also what Bob's currently sort of interested in right now and just some of his own kind of practical tips and things like that like he's such a wealth of information and you can tell a super enthusiastic guy so bob is a board certified specialist in sports dietetics he's the former director of sports nutrition for the university of florida and he also served as a sport dietitian for the u.s olympic committee he also owns energy performance which is a consulting and testing and nutrition company and has also developed nutrition snacks performance snacks based on his philosophies of sports nutrition he has a bachelor's degree in exercise and sports science a master's degree in health and exercise science and another master's degree in food science which pretty much explains his gourmet snack mix that he he created the concepts of nutrition periodization and metabolic efficiency training and has trained thousands of practitioners over the years in these concepts and he has books on the subjects as well so you can see he's really passionate about getting his messages about uh, fuel timing, metabolic efficiency and performance nutrition out there to us practitioners which I'm super stoked about. You can find Bob at his website www.energyperformance.com and that is E-N-R-G performance.com and you can also find him pretty easily over on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter with the handle Bob Sieberhor. So without delay, please enjoy my conversation that I have with Bob Sieberhor. Kia ora, Bob. It is lovely to have you on the podcast this morning. So thank you so much for taking the time to um, to speak to me. Now, kia ora, it's a New Zealand greeting and we were just saying 
offline that you haven't yet been down under. Correct. Correct. One of definitely my bucket list uh, things to do. And I don't know, something about New Zealand, just that that area just fascinates me from the terrain, obviously outdoors activities. And I've, I'm, I'm like you, an outdoor you know athlete enthusiast. Any Anytime you get me on dirt or trails, I'm very happy. So I would love to make it down there someday. Oh, it would be fantastic to have you, um, in yeah. part because you're a little bit of a nutrition hero of mine. Oh, so thank you. Would, oh my gosh, I would, yeah. I have to yeah. say, it's so interesting. So I've been a nutritionist for about 20 years. Okay. And probably, and has been, have been practicing for about 16 of those years. And Gotcha. In and around, probably in the first few years, it was almost like something that we never really spoke about was that we would sit down and talk to our athletes about the conventional sports nutrition guidelines and what they yep. were supposed to do, yep. but they never really worked. Exactly. And so interesting. And so I remember being at a conference with some dietitians, friends of mine, and we were sort of like listening to someone talk about the sports nutrition guidelines, like one of yeah. the sort of um, gurus, if you like, in the field yeah. at the time. Yeah. And we were like, sort of turned to each other and, and we're sort of like, does that, does that really work with your athletes? Yeah. Like, <laughs> you know? And they were sort of like, oh, sort of doesn't. I can't yes. really can't really recommend that they do that and it was almost like no one really talked about it yet this is what we were supposed to say happened so right bob when was your aha moment with this because you must have experienced the same thing oh so much so it was you know it was like many things i do in, in my professional career a lot of it is out of frustration right but a lot of it also is that something is definitely not working i think that's why i'm such a great you know small business owner entrepreneur call it what you want but i you know not to muddy the waters but i actually started in the reverse that most registered dietitians do so i actually went to school and, and i'm an exercise i'm a trained exercise physiologist with a heavy background in behavior modification strategies right so that's my background then I went back to school, got a couple master's degrees. Uh, that's when I kind of formulated this whole, wow, I'm, I'm really loving nutrition and sport nutrition. I know I always wanted to be a sport, you know, we called ourselves, if you remember, sport nutritionists back in the days, right? Now, now we're sport dietitians. But I remember, honestly, it was... It was 19, 1998, not to date myself too much, but that's when I went back to grad school. Uh, I, had, I had actually graduated my undergrad, worked for a few years in the real world, right? Um, uh, got a little bored and had a lot of questions I couldn't answer. So I thought, oh, grad school could fix that. But when I went back to grad school, I started formulating a lot of these questions, kind of similar to what you were saying and sitting in that conference where, you know, I was and I was learning more about metabolism, exercise, physiology, metabolism and sport nutrition at that time. And I was thinking, you know, this just isn't like this doesn't work for me. You know, and I had I had actually just gotten into endurance athletics and I grew up more of a, a soccer player. So I was more of a team sport athlete, but engaged in endurance athlete and athletics, triathlon and such. And, you know, every time I heard something, I was like, no, that doesn't work for me that doesn't work for me that, you know, and I'm thinking, well, maybe I'm the anomaly, right? Maybe there's something about me that's built differently. But then I started talking to some of my Ironman friends and they're like, oh no, that it's same thing happens to me. So I kind of started to have that aha moment in grad school. It really didn't hit me till after I graduated. So 2001, 
I, I finished both my master's degrees. I became a registered dietitian and I started practicing like, like the official practice, right? So this was, you know, I'm celebrating my 20, 20th year as a, as an official registered dietitian, although, although I've been practicing since 1995, mm. uh, which really, really dates me. But I just remember, you know, I remember everything we're taught in school, in our clinical rotation and everything is all about calorie counting. It's all yeah. about looking at this and that. So I, you know, because that's all we learned. I did that for the first three months out of school with all these athletes, predominantly long course triathletes, endurance runners, cyclists. And I was finding that it was like, it looked really awesome on paper. Like I made yeah. graphs and I'd made calorie budgets and, you know, all these cool things. But then the athletes were coming to me and saying, well, I don't, I don't know what to eat, Bob. Like you, you've got this great you know, spreadsheet for me, but what do I eat? When I step in the grocery store, what do I eat? So it took me about three months. That was my main aha moment where this is really not working. So that was 20 years ago. And yeah. that's when I, when I said, I need to change this. Like, but I used myself being a physiologist, also being an endurance coach. So a certified triathlon coach, but also I'm, you know, I'm also a strength and conditioning coach. Right. Mm. And what I was finding is athletes, coaches, and dietitians were not talking the same language, right? And that's one reason. That's one reason why I stepped up and said, "Listen, I'm going to get us all on the same playing field." And that's when I introduced nutrition periodization as, as a concept, so everyone could talk about periodization, but I could implant nutrition in there. Then came metabolic efficiency training. So that was long-winded answer to your question, but I wanted to have you to have you hear the story. No, that's fantastic. And it's um, interesting, I feel like your background as an exercise physiologist almost sort of gave you a little bit more insight totally. compared to, say, someone who is, you know, just studied nutrition because, you know, we do physiology, we do biochemistry and chemistry within our nutrition degree. Right. But it's almost like then we step into the nutrition lab and you forget all of that. You forget exactly. how nutrients actually work in the body, but this is how it is because yeah. the theory never really sort of lined up with the physiology. That's why I feel like people have a bit of an edge when they understand, you know, how the body works so much more. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, your nutrition periodization book was one of the first nutrition books I bought outside of oh. like, when I graduated. I was like, oh, this looks sort of interesting and scientific. I think I'm going to buy yeah. this. Yeah. Um, maybe read about half of it. And it's no disrespect to you. It's just that's yeah. what I do with books. I buy right, them, right. I read half of them, put them back <laughs> on the shelf. Um, so your concept about nutrition periodization, do you want to talk us sort of through that, Bob, and then potentially move on to the next big concept, obviously, metabolic efficiency. So how does that sort of work? How did that transition? Yeah, like I said, I you know, the reason I kind of created this nutrition periodization concept is because I just nobody we weren't talking the same language with athletes, mm. with coaches and strength coaches. So I, I wanted to bring us on the same playing field. With that, like in my mind, it was easy, right? I mean, I'm an endurance athlete. I'm a strength coach. I coach endurance athletes. Like it seems super easy, but as I was, I was working with athletes, it was, it was funny, Mickey, because I would always ask them, like the first question would be, what training cycle are you in? Like you're coming to me as a dietitian and I'm not asking you about food or anything. I'm asking you what training cycle are you in? And they're looking at me like, why are you asking that? Right. So, yeah. so I found it was a really void subject that, that a lot of endurance athletes specifically 
had no idea, number one, what periodization was, or they Mm -hmm. didn't have that discussion with their coach, or maybe Mm -hmm. their coach just didn't share that with them. So that is kind of my foundation. And that's why I wanted to bring it out in the open. So we could just all be at least on the same level when we can talk about that. And I always, I always joke with athletes. I say, if, you know, if you meet me on the street and you're like, Oh, Hey, he knows, you know, he's a sport dietitian. I'm going to ask him what to eat. I'm going to tell you that I can't answer that question until I know, you know, obviously a few things. The first thing is what type of athlete, what training cycle are you in? And obviously what your goals are, right? So nutrition periodization really, in my mind, really kind of gave birth to the the future of sport nutrition, which mm-hmm. was about 15 to 20 years ago. Like that just helped us understand. And now you see, as you know, nutrition periodization is everywhere, like every yeah. article, every book and media, which is fantastic because now a lot of our colleagues actually understand this. Yeah. And I find personally that a lot of registered dietitians who do not have exercise science background, they're at least getting a little bit more knowledgeable with this. They may not know anatomy, physiology, all the, all the intricate nature of, of physiology, but at least they're understanding how to periodize nutrition and how to have those discussions. And that's one thing that I pride myself on is just bringing that out in the open. So that was, that was, I think that was 2002. I started 2001, 2002. I really started, you know, creating that but then, and here's here's how it moved into metabolic efficiency training. And it's such a funny story because as I as I told you, I, I'm, I'm a lifelong athlete, right? I grew up playing competitive soccer in my sophomore year of undergrad in, in, in school setting exercise physiology. A buddy of mine dared me to do a triathlon, right? It was just a sprint triathlon. It was on campus. And I was like... I'm I'm a little competitive, like in everything I do, right? So I said, okay, you got like if I'm gonna do it, you're gonna do it. But Mickey, here's the thing. I had no idea what a triathlon was, like honestly, right? And, and so I'm like, okay, I'll do it. And then I'm yeah. like, wait a second, maybe I should figure out what this is first. And then I found out it was swimming. And you know, I'm what I call a land athlete, right? I did not grow up swimming. Uh, you know, in school I had a mountain bike, a really old mountain bike, but as a soccer player, I could I could run, right? Yeah. But I could sprint not run distance. Right. Which is interesting. So, so I took his dare and, and, you know, finished the triathlon, but that is that's, and then from there I started, you know, due diligence, I started doing longer distances. And, you know, I think three or four late year later, late years later, I did an Ironman, but I was having severe GI distress, gastrointestinal distress, like severe, right. Followed a high carb diet. Yeah. Oh, sorry, Bob. Was that just in your training or was it in, in general your, with your daily nutrition as well? No, like, just in training. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I grew yeah. up, you know, I think we probably both grew up in that whole high carb, low fat, you know, low to moderate protein era. And that's the way I grew up, um, you know, grew up with a lot of pasta and, you know, stuff like that. And so just in training, when I went longer, I noticed a lot of GI distress, Mm. not necessarily in shorter. I never had it growing up playing soccer, like never had any stomach issues at all. And I was thinking, man, this is really strange. And as I was talking to more athletes and even some of my professors, I would share that with them. And they said, oh, you know, that's just rite of passage. When you are a long distance triathlete or any type of long distance athlete, it's going to happen. It has to happen. And I'm one that if you tell me that, I ask why, like, why does that have to happen? Right. So that's actually what led me to create metabolic efficiency training, because Mm. number one, I don't know if you're plagued or ever been plagued with, with GI distress, but it is not comfortable. 
right no. at all. You know, one one or two times is fine, but when it's consistent, it is like you, you can't train, right? And certainly you can't race. Mm. So it led me to kind of go back to physiology, go back to the research and say, you know, basically I asked the question, did I miss something in my physiology, biochem, metabolism classes? Did I miss something that that I skipped over? Or did I sleep through that lecture or whatever it was? And it just came to, to came to fruition that I created metabolic efficiency training literally to reduce or eliminate GI distress in athletes. Cause I was seeing a lot in my practice also with endurance athletes and I wanted to rid it of myself also. Yeah. And, and if you look at the research, I believe in runners is like 87% of runners have experienced Huge. GI Absolutely. distress. Like yeah. It's ridiculous. Yeah. And yeah. do you remember Bob, like, were you trying to follow the the sports nutrition guidelines at the time of like however many grams of carbohydrate per hour um, and it just wasn't working it wasn't working and that's like back then i mean as you know like like what we know now especially with all this technology is so much more than what we had 10 15 20 years ago right so mm. you know back then literally we had the food pyramid we had the rough guidelines of how many carbs to consume per hour and that's that's kind of what i was left at with with using and that's what a lot of my athletes were left at using then you know i actually started which i'm sure we've all done as practitioners we started doing fiber tapers we started looking at different sport drinks and their ingredients and the types of sugars like i tried everything known to you know mankind essentially to try to reduce gi distress and it just wasn't working. So I, I kid that metabolic efficiency training is, was really born to try to get rid of GI distress, but it's become, it's like, it's blown up. Like it's so much more than that now. And I had no idea back then. I mean, this is almost 20 years ago that mm. now we're seeing improved biomarkers. We're seeing better sleep, better recovery, better health markers. I mean, it's just, it's phenomenal now. Yeah. So, so then if you, if that wasn't working for you, did you just go right? Now I'm going, I'm, I'm going to have to look at what I'm doing in my new, in my training nutrition. Did you change that? Did you look at your overall diet? Yeah. Talk me through it. I actually, so this was before I said, I'm going to create a a concept, right? I just wanted to figure this out for myself and for my athletes. So I probably spent a good, it was probably about six months just just scouring the research, right? Mm. Completely scouring the research. Like what, you know, and mostly endurance athletes, rowers, cross-country skiers, swimmers, cyclists, everybody that I could get my hands on. But but looking at the research and just reading what has been going, like what is not only being said and, and stated, but what what are some of the studies that may have I don't want to say failed, but maybe even the small sample sizes, maybe lower power, it just because I wanted to see what was out there. That was my next step and I wanted to gather all that information because I wanted to basically answer, you know, the, the question, is there something here or do I just need to accept this? Right. Yeah. So what I found was all of this research stating as as we know, like these are the grams of carbohydrate per kilogram of body mass that we should consume per day. These are the grams of protein, these are the grams of of fat. That led me to the nutrition periodization concept. But when I looked at metabolic efficiency, there was nothing on the lower end. And I don't know if, if mm. you remember, but like with carbohydrate, daily carbohydrate recommendations, it was really like it really started at about five or six grams per kilogram of body mass. Yes. We were never talking about one or two or three grams per kg or even sometimes mm. less, right? So mm. that 
that research didn't exist. So I started actually playing on the lower end during the off season, during the early prep cycles and started to kind of tinker with that. That's when I started seeing success. So it wasn't really following the recommendations. It was saying, well, what if I go lower on those recommendations? Like what would happen then? And that's when it all blew up for a positive, from a positive standpoint. So interesting. And when you, I remember also looking at sort of what athletes were actually doing versus the guidelines as well. And so there was this bunch of epidemiological um, research looking at the athletes and seeing that these elite athletes who the recommendations would suggest that they need eight to 12 grams per kg body weight per day their actual habitual intake was maybe five to six. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. and there's nothing, and so they were being told, this is what we need to be consuming, yet they weren't meeting those guidelines, yet still succeeding. So I can sort of see why you would have gone, let's try a little bit lower. Exactly. Guidelines. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you know, in addition to that, remember again, like I created metabolic efficiency training just to get rid of GI distress. Like that's that's really it. And and so my athletes started seeing success. Like I was periodizing specifically their carbohydrate intake. Mm -hmm. Obviously, protein and fat came along with that. But as I saw the lowering of carbohydrates and you know slightly increasing the fat, kind of keeping protein. One, as you probably know, endurance athletes are pretty deficient in protein intake. Mm. So that's my number one goal is to get it up to where we need it and then kind of play with carbohydrate and fat on the other side of the teeter-totters, I call it, right? But but what I found was that that was having great success at reducing GI distress, right? Mm. So now we're saying, okay, if we are on the lower end of carbohydrate intake at certain points of the year... Now you don't have GI distress and all, it's all because, I mean, essentially the whole concept of metabolic efficiency training is optimizing blood sugar through macronutrient periodization, right? I mean, yeah. that's, that's kind of the big picture, right? So depending on where we want the carbs, protein, and fat, we can alter those to actually encourage the body to oxidize more fat and thus store more carbohydrates in the muscle or vice versa. Like if they're like tell athletes, like if there's a time where we need to teach your body to oxidize more carbohydrate and store fat, so be it. But we can do that dietarily. And that's what metabolic efficiency training really, that's what I found is really the, the take-home message is, you know, we can kind of kind of use that dimmer switch on the light switch and say, which one do we want to turn up or turn down based Mm. on the training cycle? And obviously the health goals, we want to always keep the health goals in mind of the athlete. Yeah. And so in terms of the types of foods you then started recommending to your athletes, Bob, how did that sort of change? Like the breakfast options and whatnot? It was, it was really, I want to say it was an uncomfortable situation for me because I grew up, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm mostly Italian. I grew up pasta and cereals and oatmeal. So, so I myself had the hardest time switching because traditionally, you know, I had grown up with like oatmeal for breakfast mm-hmm. and I tried the hardest I could to try to manipulate the ratio of carbohydrate to protein, which then you know, obviously manipulates the blood sugar response. You know, I would add protein powder. I would add nut, like all this stuff that Mm. I could add. And it turned into this super high calorie dense food that I couldn't finish. Right. So I, so I kind of scratched my head thinking there's gotta be a better way. There's, you know, I love oatmeal though, but there's gotta be a better way. So that's when I actually started opening my mind. I'm I'm a very open-minded person. Mm. And I started opening my mind and saying, maybe oatmeal isn't the best at certain times of the year. Right. Mm. So then 
I change the paradigm of my thinking, which I now encourage my athletes to do, and basically say, when you approach a meal, of course, depending on training cycle and what your goals are and health goals, where is your protein? Like identify the protein first, then you build the carbohydrates around the protein. And we know that optimizes blood sugar, obviously, depending on the quantities that are consumed. But if they go into that with that paradigm and saying protein, then fruits and veggies and starches, you know, whole grains, that actually will stabilize blood sugar. It will control our hormones. It'll actually reduce GI distress, if not eliminate it during training. So that's the strategy I started moving to. So I opened up things like, you know, eggs and yogurts and and even meats and cheeses. Like those became, I don't want to say a staple, but they came, they they definitely moved up higher in the priority list while mm. carbohydrates, it, the, the traditional grains moved a little bit lower in the priority list. Mm. And obviously, you know, you started with yourself, you then started yeah. recommending it to your athletes, but you then started educating others on this idea of metabolic efficiency so like how did that how did that go down with your uh, dietitian colleagues initially yeah well i had never planned on that like that was never the course of action like remember i really started out trying to get rid of gi distress for me like you Mm. know let's just let's just be very very biased and Mm -hmm. right and then then some of my athletes so i had never planned to kind of spread this like wildfire um i actually did develop the testing protocol the metabolic efficiency testing protocol so I, i pulled my physiology side of it in and i said well if, if I'm going to do anything with this, I have to prove that this is working, right? Yes. So I developed the protocol. It's it's actually just the exact opposite of a VO2 max test. So it's a very yes. submaximal test. So I could actually quantify changes in daily nutrition and then see if it is actually improving you know, the body's ability to oxidize fat or not. Right. So, so what, you know, basically what do we need to do in the diet to change the the way the body's reacting? Right. So once I had that info and I was kind of armed, then I knew I was ready to take it to the streets. And as I approached my fellow dietitians, oh my gosh, Mickey, I remember my first present, my first public presentation was in 2003 Mm -hmm. and, and it was titled nutrition periodization and metabolic efficiency training. Mm. And it was to a group of my colleagues. I don't know if you're familiar with that. There's a subgroup uh, called SCAN here. It's sports, cardiovascular, and wellness nutritionists, right? So it was their annual meeting. It was in Boston, Massachusetts. I always remember this because as I was speaking for 45 minutes, their, the, the looks on their faces were number one, disbelief. You know, yeah. at the end of my talk, I could just tell like their eyes were glassed over, their jaws were dropped. And like, they just, did like everything flew over their head. Right. And I, and I talked to them a lot of them afterwards and they're like, wow, that was a great presentation, but what the heck were you talking about? Like, what is this? Because nobody had had ever heard of it. So I was then probably traditionally known as that guy, right? Oh, there's that guy again. Right. So I, I will say it probably took a few years, you know, I, I then, you know, published my first book, nutrition periodization, and then my first edition of metabolic efficiency training, those publications then started to get a little more traction. And Mm. I would say got the attention of a lot more of my colleagues and even strength coaches and traditional endurance Mm. coaches, if you will. That's when, you know, USA triathlon, I was doing a lot of education for them. That's where they started to adopt it. Like all the coaches and athletes were thinking, yeah, this is, this is it. I will tell you this though, the coaches and athletes adopted it far sooner, much sooner than dietitians. 
Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. And so I would always tell athletes, you know, if you're going to work with a dietitian, ask them, number one, if they know what nutrition periodization is. Number two, if they know the concept of metabolic efficiency training. And if they don't, you should probably move on to the next sport dietitian, right? So uh, these days, it's nice because... I wouldn't say ever, all sport dietitians know about this, but there's it's definitely growing in numbers. For sure. And I often have said this, I, like when I sort of had a, a change in my thinking around nutrition, it was, I felt like I was almost hamstrung by what I had learnt. And that yes. really stopped me from sort of opening my eyes. You know, I thought, yes. well, if I didn't learn about it at Otago University, then how could it possibly yeah. be correct, yeah. you know? Exactly. And then looking back, I was like, oh, my goodness, I'm so arrogant as to that <laughs> sort of knowledge. You, yeah, it was super interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, now, Bob, you obviously will know of and you are probably mates with Phil Maffetone. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. And so, and I just think about so it's he like he he's in a different space, obviously, to what you were, but he was probably talking about some of the similar concepts, absolutely, as to what you were at around the same time. So, did any of his stuff inform what you did, or were you aware of it, or what was just sort of happenstance yeah. that that you were doing similar it- things? I was, I think a lot of it was happenstance. I think I, I was aware of his work. And, and mm. to this date, still, I have individuals, professionals, athletes, whomever come to me and say, well, how is metabolic efficiency training different than the Maffetone method? And and basically, I mean, the easy way to state that is he really does more of the, the physiology, non, yeah. non-nutrition, right? And it's funny because, well, it's not funny, but, but I mean, metabolic efficiency training, the reason why I created it, because... 75 and this is this is a a, a close guesstimate that mm. 75% of it is nutrition based right yeah. 25% of it is is exercise based whereas what what Phil is doing the Maffetone method is is literally 100% exercise based because he uses that his target heart rate as an example and there's certainly nothing wrong with that However, here's the interesting thing, because remember, I developed this testing protocol for metabolic efficiency mm. by changing your nutrition. With the, mm. with your same age, you can actually reflect where your body is more or less efficient in fat oxidation. So, yeah. like I've plugged in, for example, my age with his with his equation, and that's my target heart rate. Mm-hmm. But give me seven days, and I can manipulate my nutrition, and I can then manipulate my target heart rate for maximal fat oxidation. Yeah. So, I, I guess my take home is this isn't all based on exercise. Uh, and, and heart rate monitoring. Mm. In fact, that's one reason I kind of moved into the nutrition space of this concept is because I think it was the 50s or 60s, 1950s or 1960s that basically, I mean, we've known that exercise improves mitochondrial capacity, beta oxidation. Like we know that. My question was, can we do something with nutrition, right? So yeah. if I can change carbs and protein and fat, then, and, and obviously the answer is yes, it does have quite a quite a robust impact. But that's that's the main difference between the Maffetone method and then metabolic efficiency training. And I will say this, it's like, I didn't develop the, the metabolic efficiency training concept as a diet, like nowhere in my book or, mm. and I try not even to say that word diet, but I have to just to make the point. Sometimes I really created that concept because I believe in a behavior modification approach, right? I don't mm. believe in a diet. I don't believe a diet is actually, you know, like like the traditional dietitian. We don't believe in diets, even though it's part of our our name, right? Dietitian. Um, but but I really wanted to get away from dieting, 
And I wanted people to understand that, you know, as athletes, they don't have to be competitive, but as long as they're training, right? Mm. If you follow a training program, you should also follow a nutrition program that supports that. So you're not following a diet to exercise. You're following a training program that supports your exercise training program. Yeah. And it's what well, it's interesting as well. If I think about your testing protocol, Bob, and yeah. you know, I, so that was one of the first things we did in our lab to yeah. Uh, yeah. discover sort of to, to, uh, discover for ourselves sort of you know how might this actually look and we brought a bunch of endurance athletes into the lab and we did the RER test and yeah whilst you know in the textbooks it'll tell you that at low intensities yeah, athletes yeah. will burn more fat um yeah. that's not at all what we found we found like 90 percent of the athletes were burning sugar at those really low exactly intensities. exactly yeah. Yeah, and yeah. must have been interesting for you to sort of develop the test and then also recognize that yourself. Yeah, well, and, and like you said, like that's what we were taught. And even in physiology, we knew that. We knew the crossover concept. And I basically took the crossover concept, which is all based on exercise and aerobic exercise, and I added a nutrition component to it, right? But yeah, when I first saw that, too, because I remember like we used to do that in the lab in undergrad all the time and look at the crossover concept. But then when I started kind of looking at it in a different lens with the nutrition piece, I, I would say even still to this date, about 60% of the athletes I test still do not still are, I guess, if you will, are high sugar burners at low mm. intensities, right? Mm. They don't, they don't even cross. I call that cross a metabolic efficiency point. They don't have that because their nutrition, their daily nutrition plan is so inefficient in delivering the the quantities of carb, protein, and fat to, to optimize blood sugar. So it was, it was kind of a wake up call when I first, when I first saw that. Completely. And it's what I find really interesting now is that people sort of, um, people equate metabolic efficiency with low carb, you know, you, yes, you yes. I, I see this all the time and then people and, and metabolic flexibility obviously also comes into the piece because, you know, you want to, as, as I understand it, you know, it's important to become metabolically efficient to then mm-hmm. allow for this flexibility. Exactly. Whereas, People who aren't who sort of conflate that metabolic efficiency with low carb are like, oh well, we're born metabolically flexible. Of course, yeah. you can burn um, fat, uh, but you can't really do that in a food environment that is constantly geared towards higher carbohydrate approach all of the exactly. time. Exactly, exactly. Which is pretty much the United States. I mean, I don't know how it is in New Zealand, but that's that's the culture we live in, and it's a huge obstacle for athletes to get over. Yeah, no, and it's yeah. it's absolutely the way it is down here as well. Yeah, is um, it? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, Bob, so have you changed or have you evolved any of your sort of nutrition principles to be into the low-carb sort of keto space? Like, mm. so how has this evolved for you over time? Yeah. Because I do know it was, interestingly, when we started looking at metabolic efficiency in 2010, I think we were already geared towards low-carb even though that wasn't yeah. necessarily what you were promoting. And I'm not quite sure how we ended up there. Yeah. But then later on, I remember reading that um, you had also started sort of approaching some of your uh, practice with that low carb sort of principle. Right. Absolutely. I'll, I'll tell you this, and that's kind of why I stayed away from the diet term, if you will, because I didn't want it to be, but I, I've got this great graphic that explains it. But basically, like I developed metabolic efficiency training to allow 
the periodization of carbs, protein, and fat, be it it high or low, right? So I Mm. never, and this was way before keto and even LCHF, low carb, high fat, was really kind of in the media, if you will, and so popular. I mean, we're talking early 2000s. We weren't really talking, but like that was, that was so non-traditional. Like if you said that as a dietitian, you would probably, you know, get expelled, right? (laughs) So, right. So, so when I first set out for this, I was like, you know, I just want it to be a continuum basically. So we look at training cycle, obviously early season, we want to do more fat adaptation with aerobic base building and that, yes, then we are periodizing the carbohydrates less. And that like, that was my approach in my mind is, is lower, lower carbohydrates for, you know, periodizing that. And that it would basically change throughout the training cycles. Mm. I never really approached it from an LCHF and, and certainly not keto because keto while, while keto has been around for a while, it definitely was not in the limelight back then, yeah. but I'll tell you this. LCHF fits beautifully in the metabolic efficiency training model at yeah. certain times of the year, right? Yes. Um, and, and it does. It, it, and some athletes can pull it off year round. Some athletes can't. Really depends on their sport and what they're trying to do from a health perspective. Keto is is a little more difficult. Um, I've helped athletes. I usually don't recommend whole keto. I really kind of take in the whole medical side of things too and their health first, but I don't recommend it because it's so difficult. Not that it doesn't yeah. work. We know it works, but it is so difficult for athletes to engage in that. And so I I usually kind of navigate the LCHF a little bit more with success. And then I, I'll tell you, most of the time, they're not even interested in keto. Even if they're coming to me for keto, they recognize that, oh, if I just periodize LCHF and, and even like to, to give you an idea, like I'll periodize, I call it microcycle periodization, whereas I'll periodize the day depending on training uh, on a certain ratio of carbohydrate to protein. So maybe they have a little bit less carbs on one day based on training or what's coming up in the next couple of days versus, you know, if they have a monster training weekend, which most age groupers do, we really start looking at that Thursday, Friday nutrition and probably periodizing carbohydrates a little bit heavier. Again, yeah. totally depends on the cycle and what they're trying to do. And if we're if we're trying to promote fat adaptation or trying to promote more performance-based. Yeah, no, totally. Yeah. And do you also find that you get athletes coming to you with their idea of keto being or low carb being absolutely has to be under, you know, 50 grams of carbohydrate yes, or yes. 20 grams of carbohydrate and then wondering yeah. why they're just... Um, unable to meet their sort of, you know, uh, training goals and stuff like that. Exactly. Yeah. Well, and the first thing I like to remind them is, is everyone, like we're all built differently. So unless you're actually measuring your ketones, you like, there is not a a number of carbohydrate grams that is traditionally used. Like we have to, we have to look for ourselves and we have to measure the blood ketones. So I'm actually a big proponent of testing and measuring, but yeah, to your point, I actually, when an athlete comes to me, that's actually my first question. If they want to engage in that LCHF keto lifestyle, I actually ask him, okay, where are you in your training cycle? Because there will be a time in your performance that it will decrease significantly, usually for about two to four weeks, and then we'll we'll kind of adapt the body. So if we're in a training cycle that you can afford that to do that, then yes, let's let's have those discussions. But if you're coming to me in mid-season, I'm not even going to have that discussion with them because they they obviously want performance at that point. So yeah. that's it's kind of like the weight loss thing too, right? If someone has yeah. three weeks and they're trying to lose 10 pounds for a race, you're like, oh, this isn't <laughs> the best timing, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, for yeah. sure. And also athletes, can get away with a lot more carbohydrate and still be you know in that quote unquote low carb 
absolutely uh, realm, you know, and it's that, that idea that it's a range and not necessarily like a yes. number that they need to shoot for. Yes. Yeah. I, you know, I believe, and, and I don't have any science or research to prove this, but I believe there's a carbohydrate threshold that, that each mm. of us have. Um, mm. And it could be from a health perspective that starts affecting blood lipids and different biomarkers, testosterone and, and estrogen. It could also just be from a performance standpoint. So I, I try to help athletes find that. It takes a long time, right? Because it, it yeah. is a lot more qualitative, adding some quantitative. But I think I think each of us do have that threshold that we need to kind of respect. But I love what you said that it, it is about a range. It's not about a set, you know, hundred grams a day. It's, 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 let's give you a range based on your training cycle and based yeah. on your health goals. Yeah. yeah. So Bob, how do you approach in training nutrition then yeah, so compared that's... to the, you know, 60 grams of carbs an hour or one gram per kg body weight? What do you do? Yeah, it's it's funny because I just started updating my nutrient timing presentation that I that I usually give. And I, I I don't know why it took me this long, but in the past I would I would say, okay, nutrient timing, you know, before, during, and after nutrition. Here's what we know. You know, here's what we know about carbohydrate intake, protein, fat, all that stuff. And what I just started doing was saying two two different routes. And I think you'll appreciate this. Nutrient timing has two different routes now. So route one is glycogen replenishment and high yeah. performance, right? Mm -hmm. So that's where we just care about replenishing glycogen, coming back and having great session upon great session upon great training session, right? The other one is actually a metabolic efficiency route where now we are in a training cycle that we can actually allow our bodies to promote fat adaptation, which as we all know, and, and just so your listeners understand again, if we're promoting better metabolic efficiency, we're promoting the body to utilize more of its fat stores, if you will, burn fat, right? But store carbohydrates. So mm -hmm. I believe there's actually two different nutrient timing strategies mm. that research has not looked at yet. And, and yeah. you know this too, you'll appreciate this. We're usually about two to three years of a you know, ahead of research, just because it takes so much time to submit your grants and submit all that stuff. But I believe there's two routes. So depending on which route, like my traditional glycogen replenishment nutrient timing system is, is pretty similar to what we see these days with, you know, 30 to 90 grams of carbs per hour looking at that. It's pretty traditional. My metabolic efficiency nutrient timing is way different. Like that's usually, yeah. you know, looking up to, if you have a session up to three hours and you're, you're somewhat fed, meaning you're, you've controlled your blood sugar before that session, you probably don't need any calories. Like let's yeah. look at water. Let's look at electrolytes. Um, Obviously, it depends on the mode and the intensity. We know that. But but that's where we kind of get away with a little bit more of promoting the body to utilize its fat stores during that specific timing and, and that, that, that training cycle of the year. So I believe we can even periodize the nutrient timing system within mm. the year for the athlete. Yeah, no, I love that. And how you just described it is how I sort of work with my athletes as well. Like yeah. there'll be yeah. periods of time when that that we just have maybe a third to potentially a half of what you would otherwise have yes. in racing yes. for those longer events. But on some some runs, I'll just use running as the example, yeah. we'll just go out, have electrolytes, and it's really your opportunity to sort of prime that fat and yes, oxidation. Exactly. I'm so glad that you're on the same page because, as I oh, said, yeah. bit of a guru, Bob. Oh, um, thank you. And uh, you're a UCAN fan? I'm a huge UCAN fan. Like there's a, there's a backstory to that too, but it, you know, it, you can't argue with it. Like it works. I would say in 98% in of the athletes I've ever used it with 
it works beautifully. The other 2% are actually were found allergic to corn, right? Which yeah. obviously they can't use you can, right? <laughs> so yeah, yeah. it's but but it's it's kind of a it's kind of an interesting kind of it's an interesting product we know, but utilizing it is very interesting too, because as you know, like athletes, even, you know, you and I grew up where we just, you know, we were taught to throw in as many sugar grant, you know, sugar calories as possible. And I think athletes are still have that mentality. It's getting better. But I think when they move from like a traditional, what I call a simple sugar sport nutrition product to something like you can, they want to do the same timing, the same dosing. Mm. I have to remind them that it's a way different product. It's metabolized different, has different effects on your blood sugar. So the timing is actually extended because the molecular structure is changed during their cooking process. So once I once I implement that little piece of education and mm-hmm. we get the timing down, mm-hmm. you can works beautifully in, like I said, about 98% of the athletes I work with. And that's honestly, that's my go-to for most of my athletes I work with. Okay, so are you able then just for people who aren't familiar with UCAN, can you describe why it's different from other products and then also how the timing of it might differ as well? Absolutely, yeah. So you can, so I I always, like when someone says, well, what's the best drink? What's the best bar? Whatever it is. I always ask them, do you want a simple sugar? Or do you want a non-simple sugar? So that's that's my first way of introducing it. So everything else on the market, pretty much, although we're having some new technology these days that is that is kind of bridging the gap between the both. But simple sugar is like your traditional sport drink with glucose and fructose and maltodextrin, stuff like that, right? You can, while it is a starch molecule, it's 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 made from a non-GMO cornstarch. Mm. And they cook it. They literally cook it with water and heat. That cooking process, which takes quite a while, it it changes the the molecule so it becomes elongated. Mm. That actually, this is why I I appreciate it so much, is because it it I actually latched onto you can because uh, it doesn't cause GI distress. And for my story of metabolic efficiency training, trying to reduce GI distress, so you can actually empties the stomach very quickly. It has a very high molecular weight, which means it empties the stomach extremely fast. So it's not hanging out, you know, getting ready to to set up for disaster. But once it gets to the small intestine, it gets absorbed very slowly. Mm. So that that is like, you know, I call it, you know, I think you can call it slow energy, right? So it's, it's slow burning energy for longer duration. So that actually changes the duration of implementation and the timing of it. So instead of like the traditional 20 to 30 minutes, you know, you're consuming a sport, a traditional simple sugar sport drink, you can, I usually start dosing around 75 to 90 minutes. Now that said, you understand this too, but I actually am working on improving metabolic efficiency through daily nutrition at the same time. So Mm. you combine my metabolic efficiency training concept, which is optimizing blood sugar through food periodization, right? With UCAN, it is like the best, most beautiful marriage in the world. It just, it cohabitates so, so well. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. If I use me as a case study and I've got a hundred K race coming up in October, what would be your UCAN strategy for me? Yeah. So I would first ask you, what are you trying to accomplish during that Mm. 100K? Right. Mm. So are you going for performance? Are you going to finish and have fun? Like, cause that in my mind is, is segmenting what intensity are you going to be trying to run? Right. And then of course, the second question I would have is what is the course like? Like, do you Mm -hmm. have a lot of vertical? Is it mostly just rolling or flat? And then third, 
I'm I'm always wondering this, you know, what is your metabolic efficiency like right now? Like, i.e., what is your daily nutrition? So if it, once I have all those answers, what I would base, I mean, just just blanket, you know, recommendations for you can not knowing anything about what I just asked, I would actually start dosing between 60 to 75 minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, now that said, remember, and I think you know, but you can has a powder, they yes. have bars and yes. they also just came out with a liquid product called edge. Uh, it's not quite a gel, but it's, it's liquid. It's, it's wonderful. So looking at those products and asking, mm. okay, Mickey, which like, do you, we know during hundred K running, you probably don't want to eat too much solid food. I, mm. I just, I'm guessing, right? So mm. you'll probably want to drink or consume something like a liquid, you know, shot, if you will. So then I would ask, have to ask you, well, which product are you going to use? And then I would start dosing. Okay. Is it one you can edge every 60 minutes? Is it one or two scoops of you can powder in your water bottle? But normally I, I would start you with 60 to 75 minutes. Mm-hmm. But if I got to work with you for a few months, we might actually extend that to 75 to 90 minutes because we can make you more metabolically efficient. I mean, literally, you didn't ask the question earlier, so I'm just going to ask and answer it. How long does it take to improve metabolic efficiency? Well, in, 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 in science, in the lab, I have proven it takes seven days. Like yeah, yeah. I, You can change someone's nutrition and automatically change fat adaptation. However, I usually allow athletes at least three to four to five or six weeks because of the behavior change, because yeah. changing a nutrition behavior takes longer, but, but just know you can change it very quickly. But if I had a few months to work with you, we could easily dose a little bit longer, uh, with the, you can strategy during your hundred K. Yeah. So interesting. So yeah, cause my, um, so it's in, like, I heard about the, you can edge on a yeah. podcast that you were, you on a podcast I was listening to that you would can't okay. recall which one maybe it was trail runner nation or it was yeah because i just did that one yeah about a month ago or so yeah, yeah 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 and i was like oh i didn't realize that they had that product so i've ordered some oh, um, it is amazing have you tried it yet not yet because it's held up at customs but it oh, will, like, okay. yeah. <laughs> but yeah, yeah hopefully not too far um away yeah. but i thought it could be actually perfect because this 100k race is it's a the the vert in total is like 2000 meters. So it's actually not okay. that much. It's real yeah, rolling. Yeah. It's a right, real runner's right. course actually. Perfect. Perfect. And um, so I anticipate the intensity is going to be higher than say yes. another one, which is a lot more vert. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. So you, think- you will love the edge. Like it is, it's, mm. it's a liquid, right? So mm. it's, it's super easy to get down and it's tart which I, I definitely appreciate because I think a yeah. lot of us endurance athletes get that flavor fatigue. We don't want anything really sweet towards the middle to end of the race. So it's a, like, I think you'll really latch onto it. Yeah. Oh, awesome, Bob. Thank you. Yeah. 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 Um, so how does faster training fit for you, uh, Bob, with yeah. regards to metabolic efficiency? You know, I, it, so that wasn't really around when I developed the concept either, right? I mean, this is, this is my take on fasted training because I do a lot with behavior modification and listening to the body, intuitive eating. We, we all know that we, all of us are fasted. Uh, you know, when we wake up in the morning, I, I firmly believe that most individuals, of course, it's going to depend on age and, and health and, and even body weight goals. Most of us should really shut down our eating at dinner time, Right. I mean, after that, like, I really question why, why are we eating anything after dinner? Um, of course, depending on what time you go to sleep, I like, I work with a lot of collegiate athletes and they're not going to bed till like 1am and they're eating dinner at six. Right. So I I totally get that. But I believe that we're already establishing at least a 12 hour fast, right? Mm. Even sometimes a 14 hour fast. But my philosophy is 
when you wake up in the morning, because I, I teach intuitive eating, you know, ask yourself if you're biologically hungry, like to go through these little, this little checklist. If you are, then assess what training session you have. If it's quality based, i.e. intensity intervals, you need to hit a time, heart rate pace, then yes, we should absolutely think about feeding you something with some carbohydrates to fuel that session. Mm. If it's a session, if, if it's either a rest day or if it's an aerobic session, then I actually do promote going into that, not because the whole sexy term fasted training, mm. but because you're simply not biologically hungry. So yeah. why feed yourself? So yeah. that's, that's kind of my philosophy. I don't do a lot of fasted training protocols, but if you, if you kind of gather on what I just said, you have to assess what kind of training session, yeah. or what the objectives are first, and then back up to say, well, do I need to eat something? And then ask, well, I mean, am I even hungry or not? Like I'm like, personally, I don't usually, like I get up around five or 6am. I literally do not get biologically hungry until about eight o'clock. So yeah. I, I don't see any reason, even if I'm doing a session in the morning, unless it's super high intensity, which on a side note, I try not to do any high intensity in the morning because it's like, I've just found for my body, my, you know, cortisol spiking, like I cannot get quality training in mm. the morning. So I don't even, I don't even go there with myself. Yeah. Oh, interesting. And so, you know, that sounds completely reasonable and like yeah. with regards to the fasted training and, yeah. and, um, and what you do. Is there any differences for you with when you work with females as opposed to males, Bob? I knew that question was coming. I knew you were setting it that up, does, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> uh, Yeah, I think we've been learning a lot in the past few years. I still don't think we have a lot of answers, like definitive answers. Mm. I like to work with female athletes and you know track their menstrual cycle, track track everything really, hormone panels over time. Yeah. And I think, unfortunately, that does, like, for me, it takes at least six to 12 months to really start getting an accurate vision of what's going on. So for males, I mean, in terms of what we real, we know in research, males, we realize that fasted training can, can work a lot better, if you will. And, and mm. you know, it depends on, I guess, how you define better. Uh, I, although I have seen some males absolutely destroy some testosterone balance um, with too much fasted training. So that's that's one little warning sign I would throw out. With females, I'm a lot more careful with fasted training. I try, I won't say I stray away from it, but I really try to track kind of get into the menstrual cycle first and then look at biological hunger, intuitive eating before yeah. we even have that fasted training discussion. Yeah. Yeah. Cause yeah. I do think there are some, some, I don't think there are of great benefits as you see in males versus females. So I'm not ready personally as a practitioner to pull that trigger and recommend it 100% of the time in females just yet. Yeah. And it's really interesting because with I, when I, you know, work with my female athletes and I find women are very quick to restrict compared to men, yes, you know, yes. and so we've been pulling things out of our diets since the eighties. It's super right. easy. If you tell me to get up and not eat, then, you know, yeah. sure. But, you know, and some women are really, some women are just not robust, right. you know, against that exactly. faster training, but there are other women that are as well, you know, and it, women really know their bodies well, you know, and so yes. if they've got some qualitative markers that would suggest that their fasted training is then going to, um, is impacting negatively on their sleep or their mood or anything like that, then yes. it might not be a great idea for them. Exactly. So it's them, you're right. It's the athlete knowing themselves as well as yeah. the coach being really sort of familiar right. with it too, right? Well, and I think a lot of athletes, and they're starting to realize this, but you know, in the coaching and even the physiology world, like we understood this for, for decades, but 
I don't think a lot of athletes really understand that what you're doing today for training mm. is actually also being reflected on what's happened the past, literally probably the past three to seven days beforehand. And what you're doing today will impact the next few days of yeah. training afterwards, right? So yeah. it's not like training is not a moment in time. Biology is not a moment in time. It's it's ever changing. So i.e. If, if you're a female and you're doing a fasted session this morning, and maybe it is a little bit more of a tempo or threshold effort, that may actually go well today, but it may, just may, have a negative effect in the next two days of training. So yeah, I think totally. we need to really help athletes understand that. It's not yeah. all about what you're doing today. No, no, I love that. And it's so, and I, I talk about that with nutrition as well. It's like your body isn't this like uh, bank balance that you yes. have to, you know, settle at yep. the end of every day. It's, you know, exactly. it's that kind exactly. of three to four days. Yes. So Bob, like, what's your diet like then? Oh, it's, you know, it's really interesting you ask that because it, it, I, I experiment so much. It's not even funny. Like I do, I do, you know, blood work testing with me, hormone testing with me, obviously metabolic efficiency, like crazy. I actually just went, well, what is it? It's, it's in March, April, and May, I went through a little daily nutrition experiment and I was pretty mm -hmm. LCHF, right? Pretty low yeah. carb, high fat, not really training for a competition, but just, you know, training to stay fit. So I was doing a lot of cross training, running and cycling, um, hiking, you know, you name it, but, but my intensity wasn't high either. Right. So I, mm. I did this little experiment cause I knew I was going to do some blood work testing. Yeah. And just to preface this, and, and this is why I keep saying, if you're, if you're hearing this, I keep bringing up the health thing. I have just horrible cards that, that have been dealt to me in terms mm. of genetics and blood lipids, right? So a lot of family history, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, the whole, the whole huh. shebang. With that, I also have higher level, like you would, you know, it's the whole, don't judge a book by its cover. Like, like mm. I look pretty healthy. I look pretty fit. But when you look at my blood work, Ooh, you know, like a literally Mickey, a doctor would have seen my, my level, my blood markers. And I did a, I did a full, uh, particle size test lipid profile. So NMR yeah. or whatever we want to call it. This was at the end of May. If I would have shown a doctor that they would have they would have recommended me go on statins immediately. They probably would have said, mm. you need to do this. You're going to die. You know, that kind of a thing. Like, it, you know, I had some pretty high levels, but not alarming because I'm trying something. Right. So right yeah. now, since June, so I'm in I'm about six weeks into it. I completely reverse this LCHF and not that I'm doing super high carb but I've introduced grains. Um, but what I'm trying to focus on is focus on a really high fiber approach. I'm okay. still getting protein, but I'm not doing a lot of red meats. Uh, most of my protein is actually, to be honest with you, chicken, uh, mm -hmm. from an animal source. I, I pretty much deleted cheese and red meat from my daily nutrition plan. Um, mm. and it's because I want to see what that does. So I'm, I'm increasing fiber. I'm increasing, obviously, the phytonutrients, polyphenols, all that great stuff. But I'm reducing a lot of the saturated fat. I'm reducing just a lot of the, you know, I'm, I'm basically doing a MC, I guess, MF, right? Kind of, yes, kind of, yes, or yes, LF yes. kind of a thing. Yeah. yeah, um, yeah. So I've introduced more carbohydrates. So I'm, I'm giving myself three months and then I'm doing another blood work uh, analysis just to see from a health perspective what that does. Uh, because obviously, as you know, I mean, health is, is paramount to performance. It doesn't like, sure. if you're not healthy, you can't perform. Obviously, you know, I don't want to leave this earth before I want to leave this earth. So I'm going to be really curious to see what this does. Um, I have noticed again, not that I'm training hard, but I have noticed with a little bit more carbohydrates on board that my runs are better. My bikes are better. It's just, I mean, that's, that's the, 
no duh moment, right? Because we have more, more glycogen stores. Um, but I've been, you know, I've also noticed my body weight hasn't changed, but mm. I have noticed a little bit of composition changes, especially yeah. where, you know, males traditionally stored in, in the wonderful, you know, the stomach area. So it's just, it's just interesting about halfway through this second part of my experiment, what I'm noticing so far, but you know, I, I believe proof is in the numbers. Like I, I actually used to be vegetarian for 10 years Mm. And it wasn't until I did blood work and then I also did a metabolic efficiency test, but I actually went from vegetarian to non-vegetarian because I actually saw better blood work, blood lipids specifically, when I introduced animal proteins. Mm. I believe, and here's just this, this little, this little thing I want to put out there. I believe my body is set up to consume animal proteins, but not as much as as what most LCHF people will actually do, right? Yeah, and that kind of comes back to the whole genetics, genomics, what each of us are programmed with. So I don't believe that you and I could follow the same LCHF plan and have mm. you know the same results. And that's bad a bad example because I'm male, you're female, but you know, call yeah. it call it however you want to compare it. But I and that's one thing I really tell athletes is just because this works for you, like let's number one, take a deeper look. Like let's, I'm a huge promoter of testing, biomarker, yeah. blood work testing, because we want to see what's happening inside the body. If, if I honestly, if I didn't look at that for myself, who knows what would happen? Like I, you know, my, my, everything is, is all the bad is high. All the good is kind of low. I even went in for a calcium heart scan. I mean, I mean, oh, to wow. that point, I'm like, oh my gosh, which, which I don't know if you know much about that. I, I learned yeah. about that. And it came up, even though I, like I had high particle size, you know, LDL particle size, even though it was, it was more the APO, it was more the large fluffy, the B, um, yeah. my calcium scan came up with a zero. And, and it was yeah. so funny because when I, when the lady told me this, the, the technician told me, okay, you're a zero and she's explaining it. I, I looked at her and I said, are you sure that's right? Cause yeah. I was fully expecting calcium deposits because of my high blood lipid profile. Interesting. And I think that's probably the next step. Like if you're going to ask me, what are you doing next? I'm really digging in a little bit deeper to this because yeah. I don't, I want to find that relationship between what's happening, you know, in the heart. And we're talking about plaque and calcium buildup. And actually, if we're having these high blood lipids, specifically particle size and, and that, that, uh, that or that uh, specific realm of yes, high having high LDL particle size, low HDL particle size. I want to actually answer the question: Is that detrimental? Yeah, like, yeah. We think it is. But yeah. I don't know. I, I who knows if this is another concept or not. But I, I'm. This is the end of one experiment right now. Yeah. Oh, so interesting, Bob. So yeah. when so did you do your blood markers prior to being very low carbohydrate, then retest, and then you're retesting again, or was it? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And, you and so my it... blood markers before were kind of what I would call normal, right? Yeah. I, I still had some higher levels, but it wasn't like, like when I did the traditional LCHF and I included obviously more animal proteins, which had more saturated fats, that's when I saw the particle size numbers go through the roof. Yeah. Right? Interesting. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And any change in your triglycerides at all? No. From, yeah. from first to second? Yeah. No, no, yeah, yeah, they were yeah. pretty, I mean, a, a little bit, but nothing significant. I'm, I'm actually really looking forward because when I was, 
vegetarian, obviously high carbohydrate, my triglycerides were also through the roof. Interesting. Obviously, right. So I'm really curious to see what happens in the next couple months when I do my my third blood work analysis. And isn't that interesting? Because as a dietitian and and someone who obviously enjoys, I'm just going to assume healthy food. Oh yeah, your yeah. triglycerides wouldn't have been high because you would have had you know a whole heap of junk food or anything like that in your diet. Right. Exactly. It's just yeah. that you know, and this is why I find, and I said earlier, I think we all have a carbohydrate threshold. Mm. I believe that we. Do do have these thresholds of carbohydrate that are actually affecting blood markers, yeah. either negatively or positively. And again, I think it's it's unfair for us to say, you know, we are all the same because obviously we know we don't come from the same genetic pool, but I think we're paying much more attention these days. I know I am to genetics and genomics because it does influence it's not, you know, taste preferences and this and that most of the time, but it's influencing how these foods interact in our body based on the cards that have been dealt to us. And I think that's one thing that athletes really need to understand these days is as dietitians, we're kind of taking it to the next level. Like we're not just, you know, diet doctors, if you will, and just giving you calorie budgets and calorie counting. Like we're really looking into the science and a lot more of the systems that are involved with how food interacts in the body. Absolutely. And now that, I mean, those kind of tests that you're talking about are so much more readily available. Like Absolutely. Particularly for you in North America, in New Zealand, it's a little bit harder to get these tests, but there Mm. are companies like NutriSearch, for example, whereby they send our blood markers to Australia and they get analyzed there and come back. So it's it's not cheap, but for people who are really interested in looking under the hood, they're certainly, it can be super helpful. Absolutely. Um, Bob, you're um, interesting on that fiber front. You've pr- you're probably well familiar with the studies looking at psyllium husk and yes, yeah. Yes. Like I have a friend actually, and she had she's another nutritionist, and she had quite a high LDL cholesterol um, number. Yep. And so she had psyllium husk, had a teaspoon of that with each meal for five weeks, dropped yeah. it by half, which was super interesting. Wow, yeah, that yeah. is amazing. Very responsive yeah, well- to it. Yeah, well, and I'm I'm back. Remember, I talked about oatmeal before. Like mm. I'm back to my my oats. I add psyllium husk. I add ground flax. You know, I mean, it's 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 like a super high fiber morning. You know, start of my day. <laughs> oh, you must be stoked to be back to those oats. <laughs> it is kind of nice. You know, I, I won't lie. Like it's kind of it, it kind of brings back like the comfort in it because mm. you know I was so used to it years and years and years ago, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So then, Bob, are you if you're happy for me to ask, can you talk me through a typical day's food for you? Oh my gosh. It really depends. Honestly, it really depends on my training and and what I'm doing. Um, you know, this morning, actually I had a metabolic efficiency test, which started kind of early. So I literally like last night, I just made a smoothie that Mm -hmm. had almond milk. What did I put in there? I put almond milk. I put spinach, blueberries. Uh, I used a whey protein powder. I put nut butter. I used peanut butter last night, and then I put ground flax and psyllium husk, and then just blend it. And that I just put that in a shaker bottle because I knew I wouldn't be able to eat. Um, now that said, you know my test started at seven thirty. Mm-hmm. I didn't start consuming that until about nine o'clock because, as I said earlier, I just wasn't that hungry. So that is a typical like on the go breakfast. Mm-hmm. Uh, I kind of told you about my normal like my oatmeal is is oats. It's uh, I actually put some walnuts in my oats. I put psyllium husk ground flax or sometimes hemp seed uh i'll put uh either blueberries or or what else i put a banana in there sometimes just made with almond milk so that's like a traditional breakfast mm. that in you know to be honest with you i don't really eat a lunch um 
really depends on my day, but I'll usually just snack. And, you know, my snacks now, they they, traditionally, they were like meat and cheese and nuts. Uh, Now I find myself like whole grain crackers. I do still eat a lot of nuts and nut butter because I just, I just love them to death, but Mm -hmm. I'm just, I'm gravitating more towards whole grain breads, you know, peanut butter and honey and banana sandwiches. So it's, but I'll tell you, it's been difficult because now I'm like my paradigm of thinking has completely turned around where I'm mm. like, okay, now I need to eat more grains with high fiber, right? I eat more fruits. I eat more, well, actually a lot more fruits than I did on LCHF. Um, so that's, that's kind of throughout my day for dinner. It kind of depends, you know, I've got a few kids and, you know, I, I do most of the cooking. So, you know, last night was whole grain pasta. I, I did, I browned some, some, you know, 93% ground beef, uh, 93% lean ground beef, just made a little a little sauce put that in there with some broccoli and 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 other uh, some squash and zucchini so it they can rotate i you know during this experiment i'm focusing my dinners now more on things like farro and quinoa and whole grain mm. pastas we still do chicken quite a bit because you know that's that's a, a little bit for my experiment. It meets my guidelines, right? And and my family is really uh will it really welcoming because as long as I make it taste good, they'll they'll eat it for the most part. <laughs> oh, that's good. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you mentioned that you had your metabolic efficiency test this morning. Yes. Any notable change? It's so I actually did this on an athlete. It wasn't on myself. Right? Okay, there you go. Sorry. Yeah, sorry. But 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 to your point, it was the second test uh, of this female. She's a 53-year-old female that I I tested 2 months ago. She mm. actually improved fat oxidation by 16% and and ended up going another stage and she's an ultra runner and Ironman athlete. So obviously in that package, it's a huge deal when and it just it kind of proves, you know, when when you actually can come up with a good dietary plan or daily nutrition plan for an athlete and they actually follow it somewhat it works like quantifiably yeah. we can prove that it actually works. So yeah. that, that was, that was a great, I mean, it's, I, I will say about nine out of 10 athletes that I retest actually do improve. Um, you know, every so often someone has some setbacks and it's usually because life happens or something, you know, mm. traveling or something happened. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, no, completely. And Bob, I, as I understand it, you run courses that are like coaches and and um, and nutritionists who are interested in exploring more yes. can do a metabolic efficiency um course to learn a bit more about it it is yeah i was a little hesitant i, I actually in 2012 is when I first kind of brought this to life and it's called mm. the metabolic efficiency training specialist certification. Mm. It's all online, uh, which is, which is fantastic. It used to be all in person, but then I just found that people did not want to travel. Even, even though I live in Colorado, they still didn't want to come to Colorado just because mm. of the whole travel. But I just wanted a medium. Like I said, I never planned on doing it, but I had so many people say, we want more knowledge. We want more knowledge. And I, you know, I would develop these little courses or presentations and they were just saying, that's not enough. Like we want to be able to take this and teach someone like, and so I actually just probably about six years ago, five or six years ago, kind of just focused on the health professionals. So medical, uh, nutrition, fitness, coaching, those are the individuals that I will actually certify through this course so they can teach. So I teach them not only about the concept, but then they have a mentorship with me so I can actually teach them how to implement it in their business model. So it kind of helps them. You know, it's not like that certification where you just gain knowledge, which is great. It actually teaches you how to use it in your practice. 
That's fantastic. That's yeah, awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's and, fun. I love educating. Yeah, no, I can absolutely see that. And you're so enthusiastic, which is, oh, thank which you. is thank I've, you. you know, listened to you on a number of podcasts and and, and stuff like it. So it's been yeah. great chatting, Bob. Yeah. Um, one final thing, may I ask, any supplements that you recommend people um, take to help with their metabolic efficiency sort of journey? Mm. Like what's, yeah. I would say, let me think about that. Not directly related to improving fat adaptation. You know, there are some fat burners out there that we've always heard of growing up, yeah. which are basically proven unsafe. But but I will say this with on the supplement side of things. I encourage people to, again, pop the hood, you know, look under the hood, see what's going mm. on in the body. I, I firmly believe, in, even though, you know, we all have a food first model, I really do believe certain individuals require certain supplements, yeah. but it is somewhat based on what's happening in their body, their health uh, goals, but also, also their medical health history. From a, metabol from a metabolic efficiency training standpoint, from a daily supplement not so much. Like, you know, there's not yeah. a vitamin that's going to help with that. I mean, again, indirectly, we know vitamins really help the enzyme. We, mm. we know all of that exists. But, you know, from a training standpoint, that's where, you know, our UCAN discussion came into play. Because I really, with all the endurance athletes I work with, notwithstanding to the daily supplements, training supplements, because that's, as you know, that's still a supplement, right? Mm. That's the one that I gravitate more towards because it just, it just works so well, but I am very, and you don't usually hear this from dietitians, or at least you didn't about 10, 15 years ago. I'm extremely pro supplementation, but you have to do the testing to see what we actually need, right? So yeah, it's not nice. as easy. Remember like back in the days, it's not as easy as looking at a you know, a food frequency questionnaire, 24 hour recall, three, three day food log. We can't say, okay, there's some deficiencies. Like we need some blood work. Like we can do omega-3 testing nowadays. We can do all, you know, vitamin D testing, obviously like iron testing. So I think, you know, back to your point, just really quickly, you said it's expensive to do that. It absolutely is mm. with the athletes I work with as you probably know, cause you work with a lot of endurance athletes. Like they spend a lot of money on stuff right? Yeah. Like bikes and running shoes and registrations. Mm. So what I tell them is as you're budgeting your annual budget for race registrations for a new bike or whatever it is, you know, even hiring me budget for biomarker testing, right? So if you can't go through your insurance, like budget, whatever it is, so you can have omega-3, uh, you know, tests done, or if you can have vitamin D tests done as the seasons change. So I think that's really wise to, to, to leave athletes with so they can kind of think, okay, I, I should start budgeting this instead of being reactive, we try to be a little more proactive with that. That's nice. And you were so right. Like such a good point that people invest so much time and resources yes. into their sport, then they may as well, then it just makes sense that this is just another element just to help ensure that those resources aren't going to waste basically. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the last thing you want to do, I mean, I hear athletes all the time, like they hire me, they buy a new bike, they pay thousands of dollars sometimes on a registration. The last thing you want to do is not make it to the start line. Right. Yeah, and, totally. and a lot of this, yeah, a lot of this, it can be actually prevented. <laughs> yep, absolutely. Bob, yeah. it's been so good to talk to you. Um, now, just you, you're not really training for anything at the minute, but is there anything on the horizon for you in, two, in 2021 race-wise? 2021, not so much. I'm actually trying to build fitness and, and just 
having fun on trails right now in 2022. Uh, there's a, there's a race on my, on my, uh, you know, docket, if you will already registered, I'm actually going to be doing it with one of the athletes whom I coach. It's called mm. the Coco Dona 250. So it's a 250 mile trail run <gasps> in Arizona. Yeah, oh and you've goodness. got five five days to complete it. So that'll be like my reintroduction to ultra running again. I haven't done an ultra run in, well, a, a, a registered ultra run in a while. Like last year, I did a couple of them, but just on my own to have some fun. Yeah, that yeah. sounds like absolutely epic. Like that it's, race it's would be, be an amazing. Adventure. Oh, oh yeah. so good. Well, I'm hoping to at some point come over to Colorado and do Run Rabbit Run. Um, oh yeah, yeah. That would be amazing. That's probably yeah. 2023. Um, Bob, okay. Okay. Where can people find you on the internet? Yeah, I'm pretty easy. Like if you Google me, as long as you, you kind of know how to start my first or my last name, it's pretty <laughs> easy, you know, Bob, Bob Sibahar, but you can find, so I've got a few businesses. My nutrition coaching business is energy performance, E-N-R-G performance. So that's probably the easiest way to get a hold of me. I just started, started a snack company. It's called oh, all around snack. Yes all around snack company um that focuses on a snack mix that actually is a complete protein it has whey pro so it's just that that's like my newest endeavor and then i have another food company that's more of a functional food company called baroda food so i am super easy to find anywhere on the internet instagram twitter facebook linkedin it, it's it's pretty easy to locate me Bob, thank you so much. And thank you so much for everything you've done to help us as nutritionists sort of understand oh. better how the body works and yes. to do things in a much better way. Like your what you discovered and then sort of shared with us um, yes. has really changed the practice of so many people. So that you must oh. be super stoked. That I don't want to say I ever started out trying to do that, but now just to, to have that that impact on fellow, you know, on my colleagues and even the young ones coming up is a huge, just huge honor. So, uh, as it is an honor being on your podcast too, cause I do listen to your podcast. So thank oh, you. Lovely. Yes. Thank you so much, Bob and enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you. You also Mickey. All right, team, hopefully you enjoyed that as much as I enjoyed chatting to Bob. And as I said before we kicked off, he's super easy to find, but also really open to interactions either on his social media platform and he's still he works with a number of people as well so you can absolutely contact him via his website energyperformance.com. And next week on the podcast, I have another conversation with Paul Lawson, who was the one of the guests of my second podcast, actually, uh, second ever podcast. So it was very, it was almost a year ago um, that I had the pleasure to talk to Paul Lawson. And next week on the podcast, we have a chat about hit science which is paul's company athletica ai which is his electronic training platform and also any updates on that paper that he wrote with phil maffetone covid19 and metabolic health the perfect storm as always such an awesome conversation with paul so keep an eye out for that one until then though if you enjoy the podcast please subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and leave us a review that would be amazing you can find me on facebook at mickey willardin nutrition over on instagram and twitter at mickey willardin 
Instagram's probably where I do most of my day-to-day stuff that you can get updated on or head over to my website mickeywillardin.com where you can sign up to my awesome recipe platform, my weekly emails, come and be part of our online members only group there's heaps of chat going on right now because we are in the second week of monday's matter spring edition which has been awesome with over 400 people or book online for a consult with me for some more individual sort of advice well i hope you have a great week and look forward to catching up with you next week see you later